0: Good morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord.
1: Have you ever heard um, how trees are able to talk to each other? When you see a forest uh, on the surface, it looks like a bunch of separate trees growing separately from one another. But underneath the ground, there's what's called a mycorrhizal network. A mycorrhizal network is a system of roots and fungi through which trees are able to pass nutrients to each other and even to pass messages to each other, like if there's a threat. Uh, In a healthy mycorrhizal network, all of the trees work together for the health of the whole forest. However, sometimes an individual tree will develop what's called co-dominant stems. That's when... um, Two stems are growing out of the same root. You've probably seen this. It can be really interesting to look at, but it also is dangerous for the tree because these two stems are competing against one another, which puts the whole tree at risk. That's why it's called codominant. Some of you may be wondering, why is he talking about this? (laughs) Here's why. Uh, We're working our way through a series of topics that are controversial in our culture. These topics also involve an often overlooked reality that we are embodied creatures. However, this week, um, the topic we're talking about, the body is front and center. Because this week we're talking about abortion. Of all the topics we're talking about, this is one of the most hotly debated Each side in this debate is passionate and fierce, but they're also like co-dominant stems. In other words, each side of this debate is like a stem that's growing from the same root. What is that root? Human rights. Especially rights for the most vulnerable and oppressed members of society. We wouldn't even debate abortion if we didn't already share an even deeper passion for human rights. Uh, we're like two stems growing from the same root. But those two stems also feel like they're in competition with each other, struggling for dominance so that the whole tree is in danger. What if, instead of being like co dominant stems, what if instead we could be more like a mycorrhizal network, sharing resources and nutrients with each other, sharing and communicating with one another in a way that benefits the whole ecosystem? Is that even possible? Do we even want it? There is no one single place in the Bible that speaks unequivocally to all of the ins and outs of our contemporary abortion debate. But there are many places in the Bible that give us anchor points. And this passage we just read is one of the best. Let's take a look so uh, far and see three things that help us through the, this debate about abortion. We're going to see the root Of the debate the complexity of the debate and the sorrow of the debate okay the root the complexity and the sorrow of the debate first let's look at the root of the debate this story is a story about an encounter between two pregnant women Mary the mother of Jesus and Elizabeth who's six months pregnant with John the Baptist at this point Elizabeth blesses Mary for what God is doing in her life. Mary responds with a song of praise to God. It's a very famous song called the Magnificat. It's all about who God is and what God is doing in this world. And one of the most prominent themes in her song is that this is a God of justice, especially for the poor and the oppressed. For instance, notice she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Many people have observed that this song is full of references to another song from the Old Testament by a woman named Hannah. Hannah was childless. But God blessed her with a pregnancy, and Hannah broke out with a song of praise to God. At one point, she says this Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The Lord brings low, and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. Do you see the similarities between these two songs? Both of these are songs of praise to a God of justice, especially a God of justice for the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. This is one of the most prominent themes in the whole Bible and it was radically unique in the ancient world. For instance, uh, there was an ancient, not was, there is an ancient ancient, uh, Babylonian law code called the Code of Hammurabi. Like any other society in the ancient world, the Babylonians believed in justice. Everybody believed in justice. However, people got different levels of justice because people were not equal in the ancient world. So, for instance, in the Code of Hammurabi, if if a poor man uh, stole from a rich man, the sentence was death. But if a rich man murdered a poor man, all he had to do was pay a fine. That's the code of Hammurabi, justice in the ancient world, totally unequal. Contrast that with the Bible, which says every human is created in the image of God, and therefore every human being is equal and and should get the same uh, level of justice. Nobody else in the ancient world said anything like this. In fact, the Bible went even farther and said that this God is a God of, of justice with a special concern for the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable. Of society. Nobody else in the ancient world said anything like this. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe in equal rights for all people? Most people would say, of course I do, but why? Many people would say, well, it's because we live in a world where we have the rise of modern science and we have now abandoned superstitious religious beliefs. We used to live in a primitive world, but now we live in a modern, um, enlightened, morally progressive world. That's a very popular narrative. But if you were to ask historians and philosophers, they would say, not so fast. For instance... Friedrich Nietzsche was a famous German philosopher over a hundred years ago. He was an atheist. He hated Christianity. And the only thing he hated almost as much as Christianity were his fellow philosophers, supposedly enlightened philosophers, who said, hey, we don't believe in God either. And yet they kept clinging to what Nietzsche called Christian morality, crazy ideas like human rights and equality for all people. So in his book, The Will Will to Power, Nietzsche says, the Christian concept of the equality of all souls before God is the prototype of all theories concerning equal rights. Where did we get our modern concept of equality? Nietzsche says, Christianity. He called this concept insane. Or, uh, much more recently, Yuval Noah Harari is a famous historian who wrote a very popular book called Sapiens. It's a history of uh, humankind. In that book, he actually contrasts the Code of Hammurabi, which is very unequal, with our American Declaration of Independence, which claims that all people are equal. And he looks at the difference between those two things, and he says, why the difference? Where did we modern people get this idea of equality? Here's what he says. The Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not, however, if we do not accept the Christian myths that all people are equal, then could we go back one slide? However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, what does it mean that all people are equal? Equality is something that people invented and that exists only in their imagination, Uh, You will know a Harari saying, look, if Christianity is a myth, and according to him, it is, then so is human rights and equality, because those things come from Christianity. Friends, our modern abortion debate is rooted in Christian concepts like human rights and the equality of all people. Oftentimes, secular people will accuse religious people of bringing their religion into the conversation, and they'll say, you can't do that. But don't you see? Whenever we talk about human rights, we're already bringing in Christian theological concepts into the conversation. Especially women's rights. Because the Bible is pro-woman from beginning to end. I mean, look at the Bible. It's full of heroes. Women are heroes in so many of the stories. Think about Hannah. Look at Mary and Elizabeth in this story. Women are leaders in the Bible. Look at Deborah in the Old Testament, or look at Romans 16, which is full of women leaders in the church. In the ancient world, women flocked to the church because it was the only place in a radically unequal society where women could be treated as equals. In fact, Christian sexual morality said, look, men, you can't just have sex with whoever you want, whether it's a mistress or a prostitute or a slave. And it also said that women are image bearers with equal rights. And as a result of that, the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world at the time, outlawed sex slavery because of the impact of Christian sexual morality in the world. Friends, do you see how significant this is and has been in the history of the world? The Bible is It always emphasizes women's rights and equal rights for all people. Our modern abortion debate is rooted in Christian concepts like human rights and equality for all people. Our world says that you must either choose between the rights of a woman or the rights of an unborn child, but but you have to make a choice between those two things. The Bible says that's a false dichotomy. Our whole conversation about abortion is rooted in a, a shared root, a shared passion for human rights. But our, um, uh, our shared passion is dividing us as a society. And that leads to our next point. We've just seen the root of the debate. But next, we need to look at the complexity of the debate. Because as we've just seen, uh, both sides are arguing for very important biblical concepts. But can we look more closely at each one of the sides of this debate? For instance, let's look at women's rights, which, as we've just seen, is biblical. In the earliest days of the abortion debate, pro-choice advocates argued that a fetus was not a human life, but just a clump of cells. But with the advancement of medical technology, no one today denies that human life begins at conception. Instead, today, the argument shifted to something called Personhood theory, which asks at what point does a human life become a human person? That's why it's called personhood theory. Uh, In other words, if a if a fetus is a human person, then it has a right to life. But if it's not a person, it doesn't. And so bioethicists like Peter Singer and Marianne Warren uh, came up with uh, different criteria to determine what is a person. The criteria uh, are all based on different capacities that we have as human beings, things like consciousness or reasoning or having a preference about our own future. The criteria for personhood is based on our capacities. And so uh, uh, if you have the capacities, you qualify as a human person. The problem is, A, they don't agree on all the criteria, and B, uh, nobody agrees at which point Do we go from being a human life to a human person? What is that magic moment when somebody crosses the threshold from mere biological life to personhood? They don't agree. And especially, going even farther, um, what about born people? People actually living in this world who don't have these capacities, like people with dementia or um, newborn infants. Do they not have rights? Uh, How developed your capacities have to be before you qualify as a person with a right to live so for instance peter singer one of the most famous bioethicists he has written this he said newborn human babies have no sense of their own existence over time he's talking about a capacity therefore he says killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person that is a being who wants to go on living now every time i quote this people always get mad at peter singer But Peter Singer is just being really consistent with his worldview, are we? Do you see some of the problems with personhood theory? This is why uh, a very famous, another very famous philosopher named Judith Jarvis Thompson proposed an alternative. She said, um, let's grant that a fetus might be a a human person with a right to life, okay? Uh, She says that one person's right to life doesn't override your right to do what you want with your own body. Let me say that again. Your, one person's right to life doesn't override your right to do what you want with your own body. And uh, bioethicists call this the bodily autonomy argument. Uh, when people say, my body, my choice, that's a very um, uh, powerful, short expression of the bodily autonomy argument argument. So, uh, to explain it, Judith Jarvis Thompson proposes a thought experiment. She says, imagine you wake up one morning in a hospital bed, and your body is connected to another body in another hospital bed. It's the body of a famous violinist who's dying of kidney failure. And you ask yourself, what happened? How did I get here? (laughs) What happened is, the Society of Music Lovers kidnapped you in the middle of the night, because you alone have the right blood type to save the violinist. But don't worry, you only have to stay connected to the violinist for nine months in order to save his life. Are you morally obligated to sacrifice your bodily autonomy to save the life of this violinist? Most people would say, no, of course not. uh, The ethicists call this A supererogatory act. Supererogatory is just simply a fancy ethicist way of saying above and beyond the call of duty. You're not obligated to do this. Now this is a powerful argument. Add to that the reality that there is a woeful lack of resources for many women who find themselves unintentionally pregnant. Add to that the reality that women in this world continue to be misused and mistreated by men. Add to that the reality that many women are adversely affected by poverty, especially women of color. Now, think about the people in the Bible who received the most care and compassion for Jesus. Many of them were women who were poor, uh, misused and mistreated by men, under-resourced and socially marginalized. If you support the rights Of unborn babies, if you favor unborn children, can you see how Jesus in the Bible would call you to extend yourself towards the the rights of women who are in difficult and dangerous situations? Supporting women's rights is a crucial part of a healthy mycorrhizal network, a healthy network that works together for the good of the whole forest of humanity. But can we also talk about the rights of uh, unborn children? Um, one of the interesting things about the Bible is that its view of human beings says that there, you don't, we don't need to invent a magic moment when, um, when people go from being a human life or biological life to a human person. There's no magic moment. We don't need to invent one. The Bible is actually much simpler and actually much more scientific about it. It simply asks the question, is this biological life a human biological life? If the answer is yes, then this is a human being with rights. The the Bible uh, doesn't separate being a person from having a body. In the Bible, those two things go together all the time. The the Bible doesn't say that that you only have rights if if you're a person, but that if you are a biological life, you already have those rights because human beings are embodied souls. It says you can never separate being a person from having a body. In the Bible, those things always go together together. So for instance, in this passage, when the six-month-old fetus of John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb um, meets the fetus, or possibly even the embryo of Jesus in Mary's womb, what does he do? He leaps for joy. It was John the Baptist's first prophetic act. The Bible very clearly recognizes that both the fetus of John the Baptist and even the embryo of Jesus were human persons whom God had called into this world to serve a purpose. But, someone might ask, what about the bodily ator- autonomy argument? You know, as powerful as this argument is, um, there are some problems with it. Remember the scenario the violinist is in that hospital bed struggling for his life. But in that scenario um, the violinist is in the hospital bed, but it doesn't, it's not because of anything you did. You don't have any responsibility for that. But in consensual sex, and we need to emphasize consensual, that's not the case. The baby is in the bed because of something mommy and daddy did. There is a responsibility there. Second, um, the violinist is going to die unless someone intervenes to save his life. But a baby in a womb doesn't need anybody to intervene to save her life. The the baby in a womb is perfectly safe already, or at least ought to be perfectly safe. To compare uh, a womb to a life-threatening situation for a baby is like comparing the ocean to a life-threatening situation for a fish. Do you see some of the problems with the bodily autonomy argument? Friends, uh, where does this leave us? You know, um, if you are somebody who uh, supports the rights of women, and we should, do you see how the Bible and Jesus would call you to extend yourself towards the rights of a fetus or a baby or whatever you call that embodied human life? Uh, supporting both women's rights and the rights of unborn children, both of those things are part, a crucial part of a healthy mycorrhizal network in which we all work and, and communicate together for the good of the whole ecosystem of humanity. And yet, here's the challenge. Uh, both sides of this debate continue to be like co-dominant stems. We're, we're struggling for dominance like, like a never-ending zero-sum cage match where we're pitted against one another. It's, it's co-dominant, and it's always bad for the tree. So is there any way forward? Well, that leads to our last point. We've looked at the root of the debate, and we've just looked at the complexity of the debate. But lastly, we need to see the sorrow of the debate. Throughout this series, we've talked about how this world is not the way it's supposed to be. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Ethicists have their own way of putting this. They say, we live in a world of competing sorrows. In other words, there are situations where no matter what you choose, no matter what you do, you're going to cause harm. There's going to be sorrow in somebody's life. So if the choice is between one woman's bodily autonomy and one unborn child's life, then no matter what you choose, there's going to be sorrow, whether for the woman or for the child or for both. We live in a world of competing sorrows. What do we do about that? How do we respond? Well, one of the first things we need to do is name a reality. And this is a hard reality, but it's one we need to pay attention to. We live in a culture that has trained us to believe that the essence of the good life is that I must be happy and that um, I, must do, I must have absolute freedom to pursue my deepest desires, to fulfill my deepest desires, and if anything stands between me and my personal happiness, then it must be rejected. In our culture, that idea is just like, well, duh, everybody knows that. But we need to recognize that this is a very modern, Western view of the good life that doesn't just honor individual rights, it enthrones individual choice. But it's also in deep tension with... Uh, our commitment to human rights especially human rights for the most vulnerable and weakest members of society listen we live in a world in which women continue to be some of the most mistreated and vulnerable members of society in fact i mentioned a few weeks ago how um you know the church hasn't been a very safe place for gay and transgender people the church hasn't been a safe place for women either So as a man and as a representative of the church, I want to say I am so sorry. The church desperately needs to retrieve both the honor and dignity that both Jesus and the early church showed to women. But if we really believe that a truly modern, civil, morally progressive society should always prioritize the weakest and most vulnerable members, then are we willing to follow that where it ultimately leads us? Stephanie Gray Connors is a pro life advocate who was invited to speak uh, at Google, of all places, a few years ago. During the talk, she showed a picture, which is kind of hard to tell what's going on. It's obviously a river, but there's little curvy things sticking out of the water here. What this is is a picture of a car that's almost completely submerged in a river. She said a friend of hers posted this picture on Facebook with a caption that said, My husband is a hero. What happened was this woman's husband is a firefighter who was called to this river at midnight. What happened was this woman's car spun out of control and was now sinking in the river. And so when the firefighter got there, he dives into the river and swims out to the car. But when he gets there, he realizes that... that There's two people sitting on the roof of the car. One is the woman, the other is a little baby she's holding in her arms. And he realizes that he can only save one person at a time. So Stephanie Gray Connors asks the question, who do you think he rescued first? And of course, everybody knows the obvious answer is the baby. Why? Because the baby is more weak and more vulnerable than the mother. The mother can survive for a while, but that baby needs to be rescued Right now. Friends, we live in a world of sorrows, of competing sorrows. Are we really willing to follow the, the need in our world to all the way to the logical conclusion and prioritize the, the needs of the weakest and most vulnerable members of society? This is a tough choice. It's always going to result in sorrow for somebody. And it's a hard choice to make. But are we willing to follow it wherever it goes? Listen. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to be a woman facing a desperate situation like that. But I do know that we still live in a world where, at least for the time being, we we still say that we should prioritize the, the needs of the weakest and most vulnerable members of society. That's changing. I don't know what the future holds, but at least for the time being, we still say that we should do that. We also live in a world where we admire and say we ought to emulate people who do the right thing even when it's hard. The challenge, of course, is when we're the ones who are called to do the right thing when it's hard. When we're the one who's called to do the right thing even when it brings sorrow into our life. Do you see the challenge here? How do we make our way through that? Friends, um, the Bible gives us a framework for this, but it's a framework that doesn't Um, solve, at least in this world, the world of competing sorrows. Someone is going to have sorrow in this scenario. And that's a tough choice to make. So what do we do about that? You know, all I can say is that that the gospel gives us the resources for doing this. Because um, the amazing thing about the gospel is that, listen, God was not morally obligated to come and rescue us. It was a supererogatory action on his part. God was not morally obligated to come and rescue humanity. We live in a world of sorrow, but the sorrow is all of our own making. We love and worship things other than God. We pit our happiness against the will of God and against the happiness and well-being of other people. This world is not the way it's supposed to be because we're not the way we're supposed to be. Do you know that about yourself? Are you open to that possibility, to that hard possibility? The amazing thing about the gospel is that God didn't have to come and rescue us. He wasn't morally obligated, and yet this God came to earth, not just as a full-grown man, and not even just as a little baby in a manger, but as an embryo in the womb of a poor, under-resourced, socially marginalized Jewish girl who endured great sorrow in order to bring Jesus into the world because Jesus, as Isaiah 53 says, is the ultimate man of sorrows. Jesus is the place and the person where all the sorrows of our world are absorbed and resolved because on the cross, Jesus Christ entered into the greatest sorrow and the greatest horror in order to rescue us from our sorrow and the horror of our sins. You know, there's a place in John 16 where Jesus says, when a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born. A couple of weeks ago, we saw that whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he's almost always referring to the hour of his death on the cross. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate man of sorrows and it was Jesus embraced the ultimate sorrow and the ultimate horror of death on a cross in order to rescue us from our sorrow and the horror of our sins. Jesus embraced the ultimate weakness and vulnerability, becoming weak and vulnerable on the cross, in order to save us from our weakness and from our vulnerability. He's the ultimate man of sorrows who absorbs and resolves all the sorrows in his death. On the cross. And because Jesus has done that for us, let me offer just a few thoughts by way of application about what this means for us. First, we need to acknowledge the complexity of this debate. Um, It's easy to think that people who disagree with you are stupid or evil or obscurantist or willfully ignorant but you're trying to do the right thing, and you want people who disagree with you to believe that you're trying to do the right thing, to give you the benefit of the doubt, we should extend the same courtesy to others. Second, we need to advocate for the vulnerable. Um, Christianity made um, human rights a good in this world. So we need to advocate for all of the vulnerable, all the weakest members of society. And that means that... um, Uh, we should be advocating for um, not just women, but for children. And not just for unborn children, but for all children, born and unborn. You know, um, whichever way you vote, this might actually mean advocating for policies that go against the party you vote for. What a concept. But did you know that in the ancient world, the early church was vehemently, strenuously opposed both to infanticide and to abortion? The historical records are very clear about this. In that um, situation, they looked very conservative to us. But the church, the early church, was also sacrificially and radically generous to the poor and the oppressed. They set up the first welfare state, which makes them look very liberal, very progressive. The early church did not conform to our modern political dichotomies, and we shouldn't either. They were willing to follow the gospel. Wherever it led them, we should do the same thing. Third, we need to reimagine the good life. As I just said, Christianity made individual human rights a good, but our culture has made individual human happiness a god. And as a result, it is almost impossible for us to imagine a truly flourishing human life that doesn't have absolute freedom to pursue whatever the good life looks like for you, whatever your best life now looks like, whatever it takes to get there. It's almost impossible for us to imagine a life that doesn't involve unfettered freedom to pursue that. And yet, the gospel says that the good life, the real good life, is a life that embraces sorrow and does the right thing even when it's hard. It says that the good life means sacrificing our happiness and our well-being for the sake of someone else. Friends, the only way the world will ever be able to reimagine what the good life looks like is if we as Christians are already picturing it for them in the way we live our lives. The problem is so many of us are not living that way. We don't even imagine the good life that way. We need to reimagine the good life for ourselves so that we can reimagine the good life for the rest of the world. So, we need to acknowledge the complexity. We need to advocate for the vulnerable. We need to reimagine the good life. But finally, we need to comfort the sorrowful. Um, The church, of all the places in the world, should be the most loving, most welcoming, and safest place for anybody in this world whose life doesn't conform to the script that our culture say, this is what a good life looks like. And Especially, the church should be a safe, welcoming, loving place for women, women who've had an abortion, or maybe are divorced, or maybe single moms, or any number of other situations. The church isn't always a place like that for women like that, but we need to be. The church should be a place where everybody is welcomed, loved, and, and, and safe in the church. And you know, the interesting thing, the tragic thing, is that our culture says that you can only be a person with worth and value depending on your capacities, That's what personhood theory says, that your capacity for consciousness or reasoning or the ability to uh, desire a certain future for yourself, that that's what makes you a person deserving of rights, and therefore you have worth and value as a human person. In other words, our culture says that your worth and value as a person depends on your performance. It reduces us to human doings. But the gospel says your worth and value as a person doesn't depend on what you do, but what you are. You are not a human doing. You are a human being. You don't need to do anything to get God to love you. He already loves you, and he proved it by dying for you on the cross. And because God has done that for us, we can acknowledge the complexity of this debate and enter into the messiness of it. We can advocate for the vulnerable, women and children, both the unborn and the born. We can reimagine the good life as a life of sorrow, sacrifice for the well-being of others. And finally, we can comfort the sorrowful and provide welcome, love, and care for all people, regardless of what their life has looked like. And the reason we can do all of that is because we have a God, a Savior, who's already done all of that for us. Would you pray with me? Abba, we thank you and praise you this morning that you have entered into the complexity and the messiness and the sorrow of our world. Lord Jesus, that you advocated with your own life on the cross for the vulnerable, that you reimagined the good life for us by showing us a truly good life that sacrifices itself for the sake of others, and you have provided comfort for the sorrowful by entering into our lives and welcoming us, loving us, and, and showing us that we don't need to do anything to get you to love us, you already love us. Thank you for all of that, Lord Jesus. And I pray for all of us as we um, live in a world that is deeply divided like co-dominant stems. Father, I pray that you would help us um, to, to welcome, to extend ourselves to others, Lord. That you would help us to do all of the things we've just talked about and to do it because you've already done all of this for us. Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for the division and the polarization and the hostility and the hatred in our world. Lord, These um, topics we've been talking about are tearing our world and our society apart. But we praise you, Lord Jesus, that, that the story of the gospel is the story that your love wins in the end. And so we pray that you would help us to be vessels of your love and your welcome and your generosity to the world around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.